Hi, everyone. I'm Raj Kumar, president and editor-in-chief of DevX. This week, we'll be breaking down the big headlines in global development and bringing in some top experts to help us do it. If you want to follow along with the stories we're talking about, check out devx.com and subscribe to our daily newsletter, The Newswire. There's a link in the description. Follow us along on Twitter, and you can see many of the stories we're talking about today. And we'd love to hear what you think. This is This Week in Global Development. Okay, well, hey, everybody, and welcome to This Week in Global Development. I'm Raj Kumar, DevX's Editor-in-Chief, and it is great to, to be with all of you joining us on the podcast. And we've got a fantastic group to have a, a conversation with this week. Our own David Ainsworth, who is DevX's business editor, is here. Hey, David. Hi, Raj. Good to join you. Yeah, and we've got my friend Nasser Ismail, who is a development leader, has joined us before on this show. Nasser, wonderful to be with you. Thanks again for the invite, and hi, David. And we had a big story this week uh, about Open Society Foundations, one of the world's biggest philanthropies. Maybe, David, you could just take us through kind of the top line. What, what did we learn this week about OSF? Essentially, what we're learning this week about OSF is that for a long time, OSF has been um, focused on kind of reducing the the staff headcount. There have been a lot of changes since uh, uh, the uh, the son of George Soros, the founder, took over, and we've we've heard pretty much this this week that uh, morale among staff is at rock bottom. A lot of people are very concerned about their jobs, and there's a lot of concern about the direction of the organisation. Is it clear that OSF knows exactly where it's going? Yeah, it's a big story. And I would say it started even before Alex Soros uh, took the reins. You know, he's a 37-year-old son of George Soros and um, just very recently became the new chairman of the organization. But, you know, ever since Mark Malik Brown became president a few years ago, they started a reform. And uh, this seems to just be an acceleration of that. And it's pretty dramatic. Uh, some 40% of the 800 staff of the organization are slated to lose their roles and so it's understandable that there's, you know, a lot of consternation there and a lot of questions. Um, and I can see so many different angles here. And I can kind of see this from all sides. You know, there's the story about the layoffs themselves and what's the right way to handle those. Some of the people being laid off told our DevX reporter, Stephanie Beasley, that they sort of feel, you know, they would like more transparency. It's not clear, you know, what's going to happen. And that uncertainty can, can bring a lot of anxiety. I think there's also a really big story about philanthropy. You know, what's the right size for OSF to be? And maybe they should be going through a reform like this um, in order to have more of a strategic focus. And we can talk about that. And then I think there's like a human rights story here, too. Um, In the end, OSF is the world's biggest funder of human rights. And it's doing that in an era when authoritarianism is very much on the rise. And so you have to you have to ask, you know, is this new strategy going to work? Well, you know, what does it entail? And the world maybe needs it to work. So is it going to work? Uh, so I think there's a lot of different ways to look at this story. I'd love to get your your take, Nasra. Yeah, no, I think this has been an interesting story to follow. And um, I, I do recall and I think Raj, you're right. You know, there's been layers and different um, modes of changes that has been happening to the organization prior to some of the recent leadership changes. Um, I think for an organization like this that happens to be a little bit more risk-friendly um, in terms of what it's willing to do in the human rights space, um, part of what's slightly worrying about uh, this trend is, you know, with all change management uh, processes, there's got to be an end. There's got to be clarity to staff, especially when you start to hear things around morale, 
when you start to see folks that are asking questions about whether they are either going to make it through another change process or they're going to be given enough information to decide where their uh, well-being but also their career lies. Um, and so I do recall one of the bigger changes over the last few years has been one around just decentralizing from many of the countries where it's had headquartered and many, many of them have been in Global North. So there's been a good trend in terms of decentralizing its scope, decentralizing its strategies, make it more homegrown, home-led, particularly the Africa portfolio, which I followed. And it's been great to see that change, that change where African leaders are at the top of the organization making some of those decisions closer to home. I think what I'm worried about is if the change process goes any longer than, let's say, it's feasible, then you really start to go beyond morale issues and you start to actually affect your asset, which are people. And if they start to leave in droves, that's a big problem for any organization, particularly one like OSF. That's a fantastic point. You're right. In the end, you know, what makes a philanthropy, a lot of it is the people, the talent. And I think particularly in the human rights space, it's challenging because, you know, you're often talking about smaller scale local civil society organizations that are working in very sensitive areas. You know, sometimes they're working under the radar or they're working in direct opposition to a government. And so it's a really tricky thing. And OSF obviously have themselves been demonized by some governments and you know, George Soros in particular put into the political spotlight, including in his native Hungary. So it, it is not an easy environment to work in. It's not like working, let's say, in global health where you know, what you might do is a lot more straightforward and probably a lot less controversial. You know, if you look at the portfolio of, say, the Gates Foundation versus OSF, it's just a very different environment to work in. You know, I do think you could consider, well, what's the right size for the world's leading human rights philanthropy? And you know, if you run the numbers, OSF has been a little bit more than a billion dollars in annual giving, which is a huge figure for this area of focus. Um, and if they have 800 staff, that works out to, you know, something like $1.2 to $1.5 million per person, per employee, which is a pretty small amount in a way. If you think of the overhead costs of hiring that person and employing them, you know, how many grants can they really administer? Um, and I think it shows OSF has been doing a lot of small grant giving, very small scale grant giving, but a lot of it having this really wide footprint. And it seems like what they're trying to do is be able to bring those funds into a larger scale and have more strategic focus. Now, will it work? Mm -hmm. I don't know. But I think there's a big mm -hmm. philanthropy story there. Absolutely. And if I could even just say one other thing, which is we often don't have a donor that's this bold, Raj. And so actually, in some ways, this is what makes me as somebody who is very much looking for organizations, donors who want to fund small, who want to fund informal actors, activists and movement leaders. I mean, the stories of the last three years in the pandemic has been some of the greatest uh, folks we've needed, groups we've needed, coalitions we've needed have been those that have been challenging these very, yes, authoritarian governments, both in Global North and Global South, but they need support and they need a kind of new donor. And so in, in many ways for, um, for OSF, we really hope that this, you know, this, this process has an end point and it doesn't cut into what makes them so unique, which is that they fund a variety of NGOs, variety of actors, most of them who are not fundable by some of the bigger guys in philanthropy, which is a shame. And so there's, um, I'm, I'm just hoping, I'm hoping they, they land at the right place because the impact here could be, could be big if even it goes through another several months of this change process that is, you know, a worry for many of us who are on the global south. I think potentially what concerns me here, a couple of things that came out of the story. 
that I thought were really interesting and potentially a little worrying for people working in the development sector. One, one was this focus on the, the inexperience of the chair. Uh, a relatively young guy for the development sector anyway to, to come in in a, in a chair role, inheriting from his father, wanting to make radical changes quickly. Uh, this is potentially a lot of change happening very, very fast. And we've seen before that when uh, philanthropic organisations or development organisations in general try to make a, a radical pivot, that there is potential there for things to go quite badly wrong. And it seems to be that, that a lot has happened quite quickly. This guy is, is he seems but there's the potential there for, for there to be some overconfidence. I think one thing that, that really strikes me is that giving money away well is really difficult to do. And a lot of people maybe think it's quite easy. And so we see the potential for, um, for the, a lot of changes of direction, a lot of changes of staff at all at the same time. I think we can see that the, there are issues there which I think if I was relying on OSF or I was looking at OSF to do work in my field, I would be quite concerned about. Yeah, I think to Nasser's point, OSF has been unique among very large philanthropies in that it says yes a lot. Right. It says yes a lot to these very small scale grants that if you have an endowment of 18 billion dollars like OSF does, you know, few foundations that are that large engage in small scale grant giving because the overhead cost, the transaction costs are just too high. You know, they can't manage it. They can't follow it and monitor it. But OSF traditionally has said yes a lot. And there's a very positive side to that that Nasser outlined. And I guess if there's a negative side, it's well, eventually you realize you've got so many grantees that you've created this kind of octopus organization and you have to look and say, what does it all add up to? You know, are we having the impact we want to have? It's a very hard thing to measure in the democracy and the human rights space. But certainly if you look at the macro trends, it feels like we're going backwards on democracy and human rights and civil rights around the world. And uh, the situation is very tough. Um, and I can only imagine that's compounded for people who work at OSF who are worried about their jobs, but also looking at the field that they're focused on. Many of them come from the countries they work in and they see that authoritarianism is very much, you know, on the front foot. And anything else on this story that, that either of you wanted to jump in on? Anything else come out to you? Um, I think one of the things I also keep in mind being in philanthropy and having had you know, kind of um, some years, both in public and private, as well as humanitarian, at least within philanthropy, we're seeing a very, you know, high number of growing um, millennials, if you will, uh, millionaires, or who happen to be at the head of large institutions, uh, large ones like OSF, where maybe it was last, you know, it headed by somebody who's a little bit more traditional, a little bit more older and senior, if you will. And so there is also this kind of thing that I really hope the DevEx and others keep in mind and maybe even continue to report out to all of us who are keen, which is what does an organization look like in the shift that it's making, even like OSF, when it's run by somebody under 40? And, and you know, within the techie world, we're a, a little bit more not surprised by uh, millionaires who are underage, if you will. But I would love to see this story grow and see the kind of change this new um, leader has for his own organization and what that means about age and leadership. So there's a lot to pick at here. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, some of the most innovative philanthropies out there that are shaking things up are led by young people. I'm thinking of Carrie, uh, Tuna, and Dustin Moskowitz as good examples, you know, really pushing in the effective altruism space. 
um, and and in some ways, you know, disrupting the sector and pushing traditional philanthropies to kind of question whether they have the right approach. So that's that's a great point that you know the the, the leaders that are in place really matter, and this is something of a changing of the guard. Hi, I'm Kate Warren, Executive Editor at DevEx. If you are listening to this podcast, you're likely working to achieve the Sustainable Development Goals. But are you subscribed to DevEx Newswire? Global development can be a fast-moving, complex sector. Our team of global reporters work every day to bring you the news you need to make sense of it all. In DevEx Newswire, we keep you up to date on issues ranging from climate change financing to gender equality and global health to transforming the food system all in a fun-to-read, free newsletter delivered directly to you five days a week. Join the hundreds of thousands of global development professionals who receive DevEx Newswire and visit devex.com newsletters to sign up to this free newsletter today. So for this week in global development, we've got a special guest joining us, my own colleague, Will Worley, DevEx's climate correspondent. Will, I understand you're in Stockholm today. Hi, Raj. Thank you for, for having me. Yes, I'm in Stockholm. I'm at the uh, annual Water Week conference, which is hosted by the Stockholm International Water Institute. And of course, um, covering climate change, I was interested in, I'm interested in the intersections of where climate lies with development and of course, water being such a critical issue uh, across the board. I thought I'd come around and, and, and see what I could find out here. And I, and I guess we'll get into the substance in a second, but it sounds like you had the the most perfect ironic arrival story to this event. You're on your way to World Water Week, and what happened? Well, I was taking a train, and I oh, the train encountered um, uh, a, a water-related disaster um, uh, right up here in the very north of the global north, um, with flooding on the line. And what was supposed to be an easy five-hour trip on one train turned into a 10 hour trip on several trains leading to my late arrival um, at, at this event. But um, well, very, very much apropos of what the world is facing when it comes to water. Wh what are kind of the big themes and topics people are talking about there? I think the first thing to say about the, the event, Raj, is it is very, um, it's, it's very policy. It's very kind of not just policy, but very techie, techie focused. And um, my benchmark for these kinds of events, rather unfairly for um, medium-sized kind of water week, is is COP, which, which as you know, is a complete monster with sort of news um, all over the place. I think a lot of people are looking at this event as a basically a bit of a chance to to kind of catch up with people within their own sector and look ahead to the SDG summit and, and then COP. And I would actually say there's been made more talk uh, about the SDG summit um, at this event rather than, than COP, which I found surprising given the, the momentum and the political um, capital invested in, in the climate conference this year. You know, my own feeling is that when it comes to climate, which is sort of an abstract topic, my feeling is that for most people, if you ask them, you know, what is climate going to be like for you? They'll talk about temperature. They'll talk about heat. Um, and obviously the term global warming is maybe the first way people were introduced to this topic. But I think in reality, it's going to be water that people, you know, ex when they experience climate, it will be related to water, too much water, too little water. <laughs> and sometimes at the same, in the same part of the world, you know, they'll go from drought to floods. Um, I, I wonder when you think about 
where the water world, the kind of the sector of people who've been working on water their whole lives, who are there at that conference, when they think about climate, do they see themselves now as kind of neatly fit into the broader climate conversation, or is it still its own kind of interesting, unique subsector? I feel um, that it's still very much kind of its its own place. Now, with many of these kind of this, um, these these spaces, there's a lot of talk about wanting to to get involved in climate and becoming kind of central in climate. And I know Tajikistan is one of the countries that is trying to campaign for water to be pushed to sort of the center of the COP agenda, um, as as they put it in the opening, one of the opening segments. But in reality, I, I think that this is still very much water people talking to water people. I haven't really met any sort of pure climate people. Um, I'm not sure that this event is joining the dots very much with uh, climate more broadly, or indeed the other big kind of global challenges that, that are facing the world, global economic and debt crisis, geopolitical competition, um, and, and insecurity. It feels kind of very much like it, its own space. And, you know, despite what everyone says, uh, at all of these events about needing to kind of break down the silos, I think people kind of like their own kind of comfortable spaces talking to their own people as well. Yeah, there's a lot of conversation, as you say, about breaking down silos, but my impression is we're often just as busy building new silos <laughs> as we are breaking them down. And maybe this is an example. Um, well, is there anything else that as you go forward and report, obviously from this week in Stockholm, but you'll be you know, covering the the Sustainable Development Goals um, Summit, the midterm of the of the SDGs coming up in New York uh, at UNGA. You'll be covering COP in Dubai. You know, where do you think this kind of fits into the broader news story of climate and development and how, how those two spaces are evolving? I, I think the biggest takeaway from, from me from, from this event is something that's going to sound very familiar to you, Raj, it's about that kind of uh, need for implementation now and action rather than new commitments. It's it's something that is runs kind of it's that's a thread that runs through uh, those those big summits and through the kind of the global dynamics on this. And that's something I'm picking up very much here too. Water following the the um, the U, uh, historic you know world first UN climate summit uh, on water in in March lots of announcements made um people want to see those acted out and followed up on and financed and implemented um before they can see lots of new promises and I, and i think that is the, the kind of the common thread here well i want to thank you for bringing us some of the feel of what it's like to be in stockholm at world water week uh will worley devex's climate correspondent it's great to read your coverage and to get a chance to hear you on this week in global development I'm reminded of some video images, some stark video images that uh, the NGO BRAC shared just uh, some months ago on social media showing, you know, villages in Bangladesh, which are really just washing away. And that these issues around water and climate are not just something far off in the future. They are very much here and now. So it's so important that the water sector gathers and uh, it's important that you're there to cover it for us. So thanks, Will. Thanks so much for having me. So let's let's move on to the next story, which David, this is one you know a lot about. You did a a, a very in depth look, a deep dive on the next gen contracts coming out of USAID. You know, maybe just share with the audience 
why what is the next gen contract why should they even care about these contracts to begin with well i mean the the next gen contract is a uh suite of contracts worth almost 17 billion dollars over 10 years which is going to be uh involved in supplying uh drugs and laboratory services and medical products uh to 40 countries in africa and around the world um so it's antiretrovirals malaria nets contraceptives things like this uh, quite a wide range of, of medical supplies. Uh, it's by far the largest contract the USAID is tendering, and one of the largest contracts being tendered anywhere by anywhere in the in the American government. It's got to be the largest foreign aid contract in the world, right? I mean, I know it's multiple contracts tied together, but seventeen billion dollars over ten years—I can't think of anything of that scale. I think it's probably definitely the the, the largest single endeavor by any funder anywhere so it's a really significant kind of initiative that USAID is going is going through and I think it's so it's obviously very significant for people who are working in global health this is a massive amount of supply of goods and it's very controversial as well the previous contract so this is nine contracts tied together but it's kind of inheriting from from one large contract that's been delivered by Chemonics over the last eight years and that contract ran into a lot of problems early in its lifespan there were a lot of stockouts there were failures to supply these drugs which is extremely problematic because if you don't get uh drugs to people who are suffering from malaria or from hiv at the correct time it's not like you can deliver it later and and, and have them catch up these are drugs that people need to receive continuously so there are but uh, there are a lot of problems with the supply of stock yeah, there were congressional investigations there were a lot of reports a lot of criticism and so people are really studying these contracts very carefully to see how USAID does and whether it's learned the lessons from the previous contracts. And USAID itself is very risk averse because it's aware of these issues and is kind of proceeding extremely slowly and with great caution to, to kind of move forward on this. So what, one of the big changes that you cover in your piece is that originally the first version of this contract was delivered to a consortium. And then the second version was delivered to a single contractor, or at least a, a team led by a single contractor, Chemonix. That's the one you talked about running into significant trouble. You know, DevX reported on that. It led to congressional hearings. And now this version, in a way, to address that, is kind of an interlocking set of nine separate contracts. Is that right? And, and maybe you can explain a little bit about some of the, the key terminology here. I heard for the first time in the piece the idea of a control tower contract, which sounds kind of interesting. Explain how this whole thing is being structured. Yeah, this is a very complex interlocking series of, of contracts. There's a multiple kind of moving pieces at every level. At every stage, several competing contractors are going to have to work to contractors that normally would compete for business in the normal run of things. They'd be battling with each other to get their hands on USA contracts. They're going to have to instead collaborate with each other to deliver these contracts that are being delivered in harmony. Now, that's obviously quite a difficult thing for, for everybody to do. And so the, just to talk about what the contracts actually are, there's uh, a number of logistic contracts delivering drugs to the front line. There's kind of support contracts to help people in the country kind of understand how to get the drugs from the warehouses and depots in the country to the to the kind of the, through what they call the final mile from from the, the kind of port to the into getting jabs in arms effectively 
And then before that, we've got procurement service agent contracts, which are actually buying these drugs and kind of getting them to the logistics people in the first place. And that, that's a lot of different moving parts. And then there are some kind of quality control elements as well. And all of that is tied together in this kind of common reporting framework, which is going to be delivered through the control tower contract. Everybody sends data into the control tower guys. They kind of aggregate it. They check it. They make sure that everybody's supplying the information that they need. And then they're supplying information out again to all the other contractors to make sure everybody has the information that they need. Like I say, a lot of moving parts and a certain degree of nervousness among the contracting community about whether it can all be made to fit together. And just to put this in context for this overall discussion we're having today, this contract on an annual basis or this initiative is going to be larger than the annual giving of the entire OSF, right? It's, a, it's an enormous initiative, uh, you know, $1.7 billion annually or so. Uh, Dave, maybe you could just address this issue of the delay, because that seems to be a really key part of the story that, you know, this is a project that was meant to happen this year and appears to now be extending by, who knows, maybe another year. Where, where do we stand with this delay? It, essentially, nobody quite knows. The, the USAID itself is being a little tight-lipped about this for understandable reasons. The contractors who are kind of bidding are, are kind of loath to say too much because they don't want to to kind of prejudice their their chances of winning this business. But what we're hearing basically is, first of all, delays are not entirely uncommon with USAID contracts because um, these are big, complicated operations. It takes a long time to, to bid everything. They, they, they're very aware of kind of the potential for challenge. There's a lot of questions fired back and forth. Um, so the bureaucratic delays are not entirely uncommon but this seems to be taking even longer than than you might normally expect and we we heard like two or three reasons for it one one of them is is, is just the complexity of it they've they've decided to do something extremely complicated and it's taking a long time to fit everything together another reason that we're that we're hearing is that uh they're very risk averse the, the first contract uh, went to legislation, or sorry, that when the when the second when the commonics contract was awarded, uh, there were it, that went to litigation. Um, there were a lot of disputes. People claimed that not everything had been done properly, and so there was uh, a lot of time and money was wasted on on kind of battling it out in the courts. And then there obviously there were congressional inquiries, and all of that provoked a kind of extreme risk aversion among. Uh, USAID kind of officials. They're very, very keen that by the time they get this actually awarded, they give it out, that there's nobody in a position to say you didn't do this right or you, you didn't check all the boxes or anything like that. And then the third reason, and it's hard to understand exactly how much this is this is kind of driving things because we're hearing different things from different people, but um, that, that basically uh, USAID does, isn't internally USAID officials and USAID staff have not been on the same page the whole way through with this. This is a contract that started out under the previous administration, the Mark Green administration back in, in 2017. Uh, and then it got inherited by Sam Power, who may have had some quite different views on how she felt it should go ahead. And her staff may have had different views on that as well. And then all the way through the kind of USAID staffers have been, uh, working for a slightly lower level um kind of getting this 
uh, working on it all the way through. And they don't all agree. And in particular, there's this question of kind of to what extent they want these contracts to go to the big legacy contractors. USAID business is traditionally won by a small number of very big contractors. It would be nice to um, to see a broader group of people winning USA business. Uh, but is that going to happen? So all of that is driving a delay. The, the kind of internal conflicts, the risk aversion, and the difficulty in just kind of the sheer difficulty of getting it done. Well, it's an incredible story, and uh, it does sound very technical and in the weeds. But again, it touches so many of the big themes in our space, and it is a massive initiative. I think the other thing that's just important to outline here is um, obviously this this exactly as David said, I um, there's been a lot of eyes on this. There's been a lot of eyes from many parts of the world, both for local actors who want to make sure that they're not mentioned in proposals, but they're not actually seeing any resources there. We're following it for sure in the global south. Um, in terms of U.S. government, I know this appeared heavily in the last spending bill, which the um, Senate uh, Appropriations Committee did actually outline a very specific le- uh, uh layers of requirement from USAID on this particular procurement, which is one of the largest ever done by the U.S. agency. And a lot of it was around transparency. A lot of it was around not just contracting and not just how much money, but actually to whom and how. Uh, This has been a very historical, uh, long, long programming for global health supply chain. And what makes it very difficult is the logistics part. And so I actually was, I'm not sure if you knew, Raj, but I was um, uh, a contractor to not this uh, winner, but the last winner. And and I do recall very well when things stopped and there were a lot of legal, uh, really terrible infighting between the consortium, but also even outside in terms of uh, what was going to happen, what was going to be different when Chemonix actually won the contract and my team didn't. So there's been a historical, historical eyes on this kind of program. Um, one thing that I'll say is it's absolutely in the mix of localization. Uh, people are trying to see who outside of Deloitte and outside of the nine large contracting, where are local actors in? Where do they have resources? Where can they contribute strategically? The last thing I'll say is at least within the committee requirements from uh, of USAID, transparency is a big one. What kind of mode of delivery will this actually require to get to the outcome that we want? And so there's uh, requirements at the most basic level in terms of reporting and data and uh, to ensure that USAID is not just sending uh, this kind of money just to another contractor, but actually doing justice to the programming. Thank you for that. And you're so right, because in the end, this is about can countries have their own sustainable health systems, their own sustainable health supply chains? And, uh, you know, that ultimately is the goal of localization, right, is that countries can do this on their own. And, you know, if you don't embed that into these large scale contracts now at the start, how are we ever going to get there when when this is a 10 year initiative? So it makes sense that this is a key issue. And, and maybe to some extent, that's why as David, you've reported, uh, there's been this delay. I-, I thought we'd end on just something a little bit more fun. You know, many people know DevX as the world's largest platform for finding a job in global development and humanitarian uh, response and global health and all the related issues. And uh, we've got a lot of coverage on that topic. And we had a story this week on networking. And like, how do you actually go out there and build your network? Uh, it feels like it's changed a lot now that we're so much more virtual than we ever were before. And teams have been spread out. But I'm just curious for the two of you, if you have any thoughts on this idea of networking. It really has changed. And over the the last decade or more, the ways that you network have changed completely. I mean, 
it used to be that the way that you did it was just to ring people up all the time. You wanted to talk to somebody, you you kind of, and a lot of word of mouth. You Every time you would speak to somebody, you'd say, who else should I be speaking to on this? And then a lot of turning up and, and kind of talking to people, going to a lot of events. And then when you're pushed to, to, to virtual, then suddenly you're doing it through virtual networks. And uh, I think for a lot of us, Twitter was a huge kind of uh, tool that we used to, to network. And I spent a lot of time talking to people on Twitter and engaging with people and, and having chats with, with people. And then kind of I feel that people who are doing the kind of niche business work that we've been doing have been kind of pushed off there as well. So I think the, the, the kind of new normal is now working on LinkedIn and really making connections there. And that's proving to be the place that you want to start talking to people and, and making connections. And uh, it's, it's really interesting how fast moving this, this process has been. But I guess if you want a tip for success, the answer is always to just talk to a lot of people all the time. That's the thing that's really stood me in good stead, I think, over the years, is to make many, many, many connections. Talk to lots and lots and lots of different individuals. And you never know where the useful connection is going to come from. The more people you're connected to, the more people you do favors to, for the more people that you, you kind of just chat to on a daily basis, the more likely it is that suddenly, I don't know where, the exact thing you need is going to fall into your lap. Well, and I think besides going virtual, the other thing that's made this more complicated for people who work in our space is that there used to be these big hubs like Washington, D.C. and London, where you're based, you know, these places that are major donor capitals. And that's where all the decision making and the money comes from. And so you could plan your work and your life around those places, maybe trips there, conferences there. I'm not saying that's gone away completely by any means, but certainly this effort at localization is designed in part to change that, you know, to change that dynamic. Here we have Nasra joining us from somewhere in rural Kenya right now, right? And we've got development leaders that are just spread all over the world. And that's kind of how we want it to be designed. So in some ways, it makes it a little bit more challenging to keep track of everybody where they are and to connect with them. I want to thank, you know, everybody who joined us this week for This Week in Global Development, for all our DevEx readers around the world. And I'm going to thank uh, David Ainsworth, our business editor at DevEx, and my good friend, Nasrallah Ismail. Thanks, everyone, for joining. We'll see you next week. Thanks, everyone. This has been This Week in Global Development. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe using the link in the description. To get even more coverage and analysis on the most pressing development issues of the day, become a DevEx Pro member by going to devex.com slash membership and signing up. Thank you for listening and see you next week.